Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Bill Simzik. Many of the significant albums from the classic rock era were created by a handful of producers, most notably Tom Dowd, Glenn Johns, and Bill Simzik. Bill signed and produced Joe Walsh and called the shots on his big hit Rocky Mountain Way. Caribou Ranch, the legendary recording complex near Nederland, was the center of Bill's operations during the 1970s. He also formed Tumbleweed Records, an independent label based out of a funky old house just east of downtown Denver on Gilpin Street. Bill's Colorado period was a time of learning and growth. It prompted his long relationship with the Eagles, and through the years he produced multiple hit records. Welcome, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's start out defining the term producer for folks who might not know much about the craft of record making. I answer that question when people ask me, you know, people not in the business ask me, what's a producer? And I say, it's a small version of what a director is to a movie. Your songs are your script, your musicians are your actors, and it's up to you to get from point A to the finish line with everybody happy at the end. I grew up as an engineer. In engineering in New York City, you, you were very aware of Tom Dowd. The way he did R&B records was amazing, and I, I just loved his work as an engineer and as a producer. Then when the English invasion happened, I loved what Glenn Johns was doing. And my thought when I became a producer-producer was that I wanted to take the R&B bottom sensibility of, of New York R&B and put the English bombast over the top of it and mix those two elements together. And in some cases, it actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> to great effect, I would say. So you grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan? Correct, in Muskegon, Michigan. The story goes that you built a crystal set, one of those simple radio receivers. Well, I was a kid about a 14. Kid. And I sent away for a Heath kit thing, and you build a little, you know, it takes 20 minutes to build a little crystal set. But the, the bad thing about the crystal set is the crystal's tuned to one frequency. I finished it up, put the little earphone in, nothing. So I went, oh, that's time wasted. You never get that 20 minutes back. And then they had a little bipole, just single wire antenna hanging off of it. That was the antenna. And it happened to strike my bed springs, and all of a sudden it went berserk. And it was WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. They were just wailing R&B records, the blues and R&B records. And, and I, as a white kid in Muskegon, Michigan in 1950-something, had never heard that. It was like revelation. The hook was set. Oh, big time. WLAC, Nashville, Tennessee. As a teenager, it was suggested that joining the Navy might be a good idea. <laughs> yes. It was suggested by the uh, local law enforcement agencies and my grandfather that uh, it probably would be a good idea to uh, look at the service. <laughs> so two weeks later, I was in the Navy. They had a deal then. If you joined the Navy when you were 17, no matter where in your 17th year, you could get out the day you're 21. So that I only had to serve three years and seven months, something like that. You were a sonar operator Correct. for the Navy. Mm -hmm. How were you placed in that particular line of duty? When I first joined, this is 1960, the Defense Department, their main thing was trying to find Russian submarines. 
So they gave everybody that joined the Navy an audiometer test. And if you were in the top 5% of pitch perception, you were going to sonar school whether you liked it or not. Everybody took the test, you know, and, and afterwards they said, you're, you're going to sonar school. What's sonar? And away I went. I said, well, where is it? Key West. Okay, I can spend a year in Key West. <laughs> <laughs> sonar being radar underwater? Somewhat. Like it's, it's the equivalent of underwater radar, right? And you took some audio correspondence classes while in right. the Navy? Right. Well, I was in the Navy. I finished high school and then took some audio classes relative to what I wanted to do when I got out of the Navy, which was going to radio and television production. And so I took a few courses. And then when I got out of the Navy, because I had electronic experience through a friend of a friend of a friend, I got a job in a recording studio, a demo studio, to fix gear, sweep floors, so on and so forth. And the, the first day on the job, the owner of the studio says, well, why don't you go in the control room and be a fly on the wall and see what happens here? So I go in, I sit down, and what happened there that day was a Carol King demo that just blew my mind. It was Carol playing piano and singing, a bass player, a drummer, and a guitar player, and it was just as loud as God. It was <laughs> wonderful. I got a job at Regent Sound, which was a full-on four-track top-of-the-line studio, four-track at the time, that was it. Learned how to do sessions with up to 30-some musicians all at the same time and right to, straight to four-track. You'd have like five rhythm section, eight, nine, ten strings, four horns, background singers, lead singer, all at once, and you're supposed to do three tunes in three hours a union date. And if you didn't, you, you won't get another gig. <laughs> yeah. That'll teach you how to work under pressure. And learning about microphone placement mm -hmm. and also different genres of music. You were dealing yeah. with acoustic folk music during the day and R&B right. at night. Yeah. Is that an mm -hmm. accurate assessment? And some jazz dates here and there. Anything they wanted me to do, it was, okay, let's do it. I just got to Regent about two or three weeks, and Bob Lifton, who owned it, he said, we're going to take a two-track machine, and we're going to record this comedian down in the village live at, at the village gate. And I went, okay. So I slept the two-track into his car, and we go down and set it up, and it's Rodney Dangerfield's first album. And we do about three shows, I think two one night and one the next night. That was fun, but the fun part was for the next week editing the stuff together. Bob was editing, and I was basically a gopher getting coffee and stuff like that. One girl I met, I took out, she was a school teacher. Was a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> All night long, I heard the same thing. I said no. <laughs> Rodney's going around. Is that funny or what? Is that funny? It's funny, Rodney, but I've heard it for two weeks. <laughs> Why aren't you laughing? <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield's first record. ABC hired me as a producer. I had engineered my way up through the ranks and worked for Jerry Ragavoy, Van McCoy, people like that. And I caught the eye of a guy at uh, ABC, Otis Smith, who said, would you like to be a, a staff producer? I said, yes, because I've been wanting to produce. I've been doing some stuff on the side to no avail, really. But at least I, I was, you know, getting my feet wet. So I got a job at ABC and basically was just assigned people that were already on the label, you know, do this band, we've signed this band, go do an album with them, go do a single with this person, and so on and so forth. Once I got there and I looked at everything who was on the label, and B.B. King was one of them, and I said, I want to do B.B. King. 
And they said, no, you can't do B.B. King. Well, why not? Well, you're too young and you're too white. And I said, there ain't nothing I can do about either of those, but I still want to do B.B. King. So I kept bugging them, bugging them, the powers that be. And after, oh, three or four weeks of this, they said, well, B's coming to town for a couple of meetings. It will set you up with a meeting with him. And if he says it's okay, then we'll okay it. So I sat down with B and I described what I wanted to do, which was put him with a different bunch of energetic musicians, session guys that I worked with over and over again in all these R&B sessions and, and rock sessions that I'd done. And I put together a band of black rhythm section and a white keyboard player, Paul Harris, and Huey McCracken and uh, pitched him on the idea and he said, I like that idea, but let's not do it all that way. He said, let's, let's do half your way and half my way. So half of the album was in his live band, which he had been doing albums that way up until then. We did half of it at the, live at the Village Gate and then the other half I took him in the studio with the guys that I had handpicked out. And out of that came a, a cut called Why I Sing the Blues, which was his first pop chart success. I think it got up to like 70 or 80, something like that. This was before what's known as crossover singles. B.B. was relegated to the he was always R&B, in the R&B, blues, R&B and blues black right, yeah. So this record went like top 10 R&B and snuck onto the pop charts, and it was a first. It was also my first chart record as a producer. And then the one after that... Well, he said, next album, let's do it all your way. And I said, that's a good idea. And the, out of that came The Thrill Is Gone. A career-making hit for him. And me. And you. <laughs> the thrill is gone, baby. The thrill is gone away. You know you've done me wrong, baby. The string arrangement on that song is so one of the key components. And I think that was the first time B.B. had used strings. Correct. correct? Yeah. Your idea? Yes. After we'd done the tracks, and I was listening to all the takes of the track after everybody left around 1 or 2 in the morning, and I had done a lot of, engineered a lot of R&B dates where they had strings, horns, and so on and so forth. So I'm kind of humming along, and to the thrill is gone, I'm going, damn, strings on here would be really good. So I called B up, and I said, it was like 2 in the morning, and back at his hotel, I said, baby, I want to put strings on the thrill is gone. 10 seconds of silence. Okay. <laughs> I went, oh, I'm all right, good, I got the okay. I immediately hired my arranger, Bert Dicatel, who was a wonderful dude, and he knew, he knew how to write R&B charts. And I said, I want something that's kind of ominous and moving on the bottom, and gave him a tape of The Throw Is Gone, and he came up with the chart, and I invited B.B. to the show. I said, oh, you got to be here. You know, this, is, this is something new. We first sat down, B.B.'s off to the side, and I'm engineering, and the first rundown, I take a peek over at him, he's got a big grin on his face, and I went, this is going to work. <laughs> and it did. And it did. After, after the thrill is gone, then the, the, the record company says, well, maybe you do know what the hell you're doing, so we'll let you sign a band if you want now, because I've been bugging them. I wanted to sign a rock band. And they gave me the okay, and I went out and found and signed the James Gang. I've heard of them. You heard of them? Mm Mm-hmm. And and Michael Stanley signed him, too. And so with the success of B.B. on the R&B charts and the pop charts and then the James Gang on what at the time was underground radio, if you will, it was a fun time. Then ABC folded up the New York office and shipped two of us, me and the guy that hired me, to L.A. to work for the ABC Dunhill. Mm -hmm. And that's where I did Pharaoh Sanders. Who 
was the king of that free jazz style, mm-hmm. mentioned yeah. in the same breath as Arnett Coleman. In that session, you mic'd the bass player's instrument. Cecil McGree was a bass player, and, and every time he'd have a mic outside, and I had a mic outside, but I also had a little lavalure mic, it's a small microphone, and I wrapped it in some foam, and I put it in the F-hole of his upright bass. He said, what are you doing? I said, Dude, just trust me on this. Give, give me one shot at this, and then I did a take, and he came in and listened to it, and he went, I'm doing that all the time. <laughs> it worked. It was very low end. It was cool. And then the earthquake. Mm-hmm. February 9th, 1971, 6.01 a.m. <laughs> Could you be more specific, please? 6.01 and 20 seconds. <laughs> I had been through tornadoes in Michigan and in a hurricane in, in Key West, and it, it, okay, I can relate to that earthquake I could not relate to. I had a pregnant wife and a daughter, three years old, and we were out in the, in the car in the driveway. We were in a high house on, at the top of Nichols Canyon, and, and the houses were you know, kind of stacked one after another up the hill. So the house right below me, I see the pool water come out of the pool like in one blob and slam into the side of my house. I went, no, this ain't working. (laughs) And so I lived in Denver eight days later. (laughs) In terms of executing that plan, you quit ABC. And did you know that you would come to Colorado to start Tumbleweed? Well, there had been talk amongst three or four of us at the label. That was right around the time that, that people were starting their own labels. You know, this is 71. There was four of us. And when I took the stock of everybody, I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to do that. And two of them said no, and one of them said yes, Larry Ray. So Larry Ray and I said, well, where are we going to go? And his wife was from Denver. And I had been here a few times on promotion gigs and so on and so forth. And I probably spent a grand total of six days here over two, three different visits. Said, let's go. Let's go there. And Larry was the business He was a business the... guy, yeah. He was a promotion. And so when we got here, it was his job to go hustle up some money. And I just kind of sat twiddling my thumbs waiting for something to happen. So in the meantime, you had a stint on KFML. Yes, I did. Denver's that was fun. <laughs> progressive radio station. Books, movies have been made to chronicle that era of progressive right. radio. It's right. hard to explain to a generation that's been raised on Clear Channel you and iHeart Radio. You could play what you radio. wanted. <laughs> what was what the a concept. Like? Yeah. I had visited them on promotion things, you know, when a record would come out, and I'd come out and try to get them to play it, you know, and so on. And the guys were great. It was uh, Tom Trinnell and Bill Ashford, who I came to know really well. When I got there, you know, I said, well, I got no job for a while until we get this label off the ground. Is there anything I can do here? And Tom said, well, you could file records for 50 bucks a week. And if you get your third-class FCC ticket, you can go on the air. I said, oh, I can do that. I mean, with all the electronic training that I had, it was a piece of cake, to be honest with you. I got my ticket within a couple of weeks, and I was doing weekend gigs and night gigs and stuff like that, filling in for the regular guys. And it was a ball. Play what you want. It was great. You produced a record for a Colorado band at one juncture, 60 Million Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Bill Ashford from KFML. Right, that was, was Judy Roderick. The lead singer was his wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two of them wrote most of the songs. Judy had been signed, I think, to Atlantic. If not so, then maybe Larry, my partner Larry Ray, he might have signed her to Atlantic, the band. She had done some records, I think two or three albums prior to that, as a folk singer, and just Judy Roderick. 
And so this was the first time she was in a band that was kind of a funky country rock kind of a band. Let's backtrack to the James Gang. Joe Walsh had built up a considerable reputation, a lot of touring, but when the big bucks beckoned, Joe kind of turned the other way. He made the decision to relocate out here to Colorado, up in Boulder County, and he was very much encouraged by you, uh, based on your friendship. Yeah, yeah. He came through on a James Gang tour, and afterwards he and I went out and got righteously drunk at the Great Divide. That's when he told me he was thinking about leaving the band. And I said, well, if you do that, you got to come here. By that time, we had Tumbleweed up and running, and I showed him Gilpin Street where we were, and, and he looked around, oh, this, this, this might work. So a few months later, he did. Came out kind of woodshedded for a year or so, yeah. doing ham radio and just yeah, right. getting his creative <laughs> pins under him. But yep. wound up forming a new group called Barnstorm with drummer Joe Vitale. Right. Stole him from uh, Ted Nugent. <laughs> and then Colorado bassist Kenny Passarelli. Another. I'll never forget the first time I met Kenny. <laughs> He's driving in from Vancouver with an upright bass sticking out of the back of his VW or some Ford or something. It was like, okay, here's our third guy. And then the three of them sat down to play for the first time. And I went, ooh, this is going to be good. The Barnstorm album, the debut, was the first album ever recorded up at, at Caribou, Caribou Ranch, Ranch. Mm-hmm. the legendary studio outside of Metterlin, owned and operated by James William Gersio. The studio hadn't even been completed when you guys started working. No, there. he was. the studio was on the second floor of the barn, and he actually had the studio portion pretty much done except for some gear. I mean, the actual construction of everything was finished. And Joe and I went and introduced ourselves and said, when the studio's finished, we'd love to be able to use it. And he said, well, of course, but I'm going to go off for like six months now and make this movie, Electric Glide in Blue. We begged and pleaded with him, well, please, just put a board in and a few mics and and a couple of tape machines and let us use it while you're gone and we'll break it in for you. So he did. We have a small little MCI 400 board. 16-track 3M machine and uh, three or four mics, a couple of pieces of outboard gear, and he went away, and we had the studio all to ourselves. Dirt floor? Dirt floor. There's still stalls on the barn floor. And no bathroom, so we'd go pee in the stall. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to bring our lunch because there was, no, there was nobody there, not a thing. You know, later on, everybody saw all the gorgeous guest houses and those wonderful dinners and so on. Yeah. We were brown bagging from Denver and Boulder. (laughs) This might be an opportune time to discuss your production technique. You're kind of an outlier. You had no background as a musician. I love music. I love listening to music. And so thusly, anybody would ask, if you're not a musician, how can you produce? Well, first of all, I knew how to engineer. And I turned into, if I must say, a pretty good engineer. I describe myself as a professional listener. So I'm not a guitar player that's trying to produce a record who's going to be kind of be drawn to the guitar or the keyboard player that's going to kind of be drawn to that. I want to hear everything, but I want to hear it in perspective. You know, I just call myself a professional listener and go from there. Your gifts included selecting great studio musicians and proposing changes to arrangements and editing. Not moving a cursor on a screen, no. uh, but cutting the two-inch master tape with a razor blade and Single-edge razor it. blade. China markers and single-edge razor blades. <laughs> Kenny Passarelli, the great bass player in Bardstorm, once described the scene of you sitting in a chair with multiple pieces of recording tape lying all around you, and you're piecing them back together. 
like a big jigsaw puzzle, and you send the band off yeah. for a few hours. Don't bug me. <laughs> yeah, while you worked your magic. It wasn't scattered. I mean, they all might have thought it was scattered, but I knew where everything was. <laughs> That's the key to the whole thing. Uh, I could have a piece of tape around my neck. I could have one hanging on this mic stand. I have maybe a drum fill like this stuck on the wall, you know, and everything. But I know that's going after this, and this is going after that, and that's what you do. Yeah. Did you ever? You had to. Did I ever screw up? Sure. Yeah, I was gonna say put something upside down. Of course. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Good for a laugh or two. (laughs) You've had enduring friendships with all three members of Barnstorm. You're all funny guys. There's always drama and in relationships, but there had to be a lot of creative joy in the music making, especially for that first Barnstorm album. You're dealing with a genius in Joe, but Kenny and Joe Vitale, they weren't just a percussionist and a bass player. They were incredible musicians musicians in their own right. Kenny's formal music training, Joe playing any instrument you hand to him. Right. What are your memories just of that time? It was literally us against the world, if you will. We had no support. There was no maintenance. If something broke, we fixed it. It was uh, like we were in space. The three guys in the band, myself, a couple of road guys, and it was up to us to do everything. And in retrospect, when I look back at my career, Barnstorm, the the first album, it was the best thing I had ever done. To me, that was almost like my thesis in college. It was like... Now I really got it. Now I know what the hell I'm doing. It still holds up to this day. It's still in my top five. Caribou became your base of operations then. You're, For, Joe Walsh scored the first top 10 album of his career with The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get, the second album recorded with Barnstorm, mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain Way, the classic rock nugget. Walsh calls it the Colorado National Anthem. Written about his move to Colorado, right. I'm always interested in the anatomy of a hit, if you will. Did you know it was something special? I think we all knew that there, this was going to be the single. I'm pretty sure we all did. The track was done at Criteria, as a matter of fact, and then they, they, we brought it up to Caribou and stripped it down somewhat and then rebuilt it once Joe had actually written some words to it. When the track was originally done, there were no words. It was just a, a blues shuffle. And when we brought it back up to Caribou, then he had at least a verse or a chorus. Oh, okay, now we know what we have to do to finish this up. Caribou became your base of operations. I wanted to mention a few sessions. One being Rick Derringer, All-American Boy, mm-hmm. featuring the hit Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo. I believe the sound of that record is what convinced Elton John that he wanted to convince That and Barnstorm. Caribou. He was aware of Barnstorm also. Rick had an interesting idea for the time. This was like 73, something like that. He called me up and he said, 
I want to do two songs with six different producers. He had lined them up, and I was one of them, and I was very happy to be amongst the six. And I said, okay, I'm in. And he said, well, well you're first. So I said, well, come on out here to Colorado and Caribou, and I'll put you together with my band. So I put him together with Barnstorm, and we did two cuts. And then he went away to go work with the other five producers. So three, four months go by, and he calls me up, and he goes, nobody will do anything. You know, they're all busy, this, that, and the other thing. I can't get anybody to commit to anything. Can we finish it? I said, sure, come on out. So he came out with a drummer, Bobby Caldwell, and I couldn't put my band together anymore because they were out on the road promoting Barnstorm. So he came out with Bobby Caldwell, and basically the two of them made the rest of that record. We allude to the sound of that record being influential. Tom Dowd, your production mentor, if you will, mm -hmm. literally a genius. Yes. I mean, this guy worked oh, in yeah. the physics laboratory at Columbia University. Right. And he worked did, in the rocket program, for God's sake. The I Manhattan mean, Project, Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. He, the, developed the atomic bomb, um, <laughs> but then became a top engineer and producer. The only person, to my limited knowledge, who actually could offer a theory on what gave Caribou its special sound. Did he ever explain it? He ran it down to me once, and, and it was like over my head. It, was in, it had to do with oxygen and air molecules and, and you know, okay, right, Tom, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the end, I said, well, why does it make it sound better? <laughs> and he didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> The Jay Giles Band came up to mix the... No, for a minute. <laughs> the Ladies Invited record? Ladies Invited. I'd, I'd done about four or five Jay Giles Band albums, all, always in New York City. And I was really in love with Caribou, and I wanted them to come to Caribou, and they just said, absolutely not, we're not going to record there. I said, well, at least let me mix it there. And they said, okay, you can mix it there. So I don't think all of them came out, but I think four of them did. And within two days, three of them left. And only Seth stayed, Seth Justman, the keyboard player and the arranger, he stayed with me for the rest of it. But boy, Peter Wolf and, and Jay went, looked around and went, where's the bar? Where's anybody? Where's anything? <laughs> and they were out of here. Didn't last long. That ended up being one of, if not the last session you did at Caribou, only because the yep. studio had become popular and booking time right, it was, was harder and harder. Yeah. So concurrently... Tumbleweed Records had launched, right? right? When I got here in uh, in 71, in retrospect, as I look back, I, I was basically a high school grad in record production. And when I left here, I had my college degree. That's what I figured. I mean, I did something like 15, 20 albums in a course of three years and, and learned something from every one of them. In those three and a half years, your schedule was nuts. You were on an airplane every day. Oh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. I think in 1973, I had 170 flights between New York, L.A., San Francisco, Boston, Nashville. So I couldn't get into Caribou. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and being, being based in Colorado. Right. Talk about the genesis of Tumbleweed once Larry had found backing. Gulf mm -hmm. and Western, Gulf and a Western. Big, big conglomerate, right. gave you a lot of dough. They gave us a million bucks. <laughs> okay. We went through that in a year. 
<laughs> and it was a blast. <laughs> we had a bitchin' disco time spending Famous Music's money. You got to record Michael Stanley, your right, friend who right. you had discovered in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, that debut album, Rosewood Bitters. And the Rosewood Bitters help me meet the sunshine in the morning. And the Rosewood Bitters help me through the night when I feel There was one from the great bluesman Albert Collins. Right. Larry actually signed him with the intent that I was supposed to redo B.B. King, do the same success with Albert Collins as you did with B.B. King. And unfortunately, that did not happen. And it isn't because of the music. It's because of infamous music. The company was famous music, and we dubbed them infamous music immediately. We would have records out. We would have airplay and we would go to their various markets and there would be no records in the stores. The company was a complete waste. I do recall that you put out beautiful die-cut album covers. Yeah, very we, we, we didn't hold anything back. Yeah, beautiful, <laughs> That's beautiful how you spend covers. a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dewey Terry of mm-hmm. Don and Dewey. Don and Dewey, yeah. Put out an album called Chief. Because that was his nickname. It was Don Sugarcane Harris and Dewey Chief Terry. And the packaging on that record... It won. It won the Grammy. Gram. Okay. For, for graphics, yeah. Resembling the... The chief tablet. The chief tablet. Like, old, like, like when you were a kid in my age, in, in school, you had the chief tablets. Our art director got Dewey's son, which I, he was in like the second or third grade, to actually write all the print, all of the, the credits inside. And there's like six, eight pages of it. It was a unique package. Yeah, it looked like a second grader did. Yeah, <laughs> a, a second grader did do it. <laughs> At some point, you transitioned out of Colorado. Yeah, I couldn't get on 173 planes anymore. So I looked around and uh, decided to move to Miami, where Tom Dowd was, as a matter of fact. He's the one that convinced me to move there and work out at Criteria Studios. At that same point in time... You got the Eagles gig, producing right. America's most successful band of the 70s. Well, they and weren't maybe, then. Maybe <laughs> they weren't then. Uh, how did the interview process go? Joe was the one. Joe Walsh. Joe was managed by Irving Azoff, and, and who also managed the Eagles. They were unhappy with Glenn Johns. <laughs> it's funny how these two names keep coming up, Tom Dowd, Glenn Johns. And they were unhappy with Glenn because Glenn saw them as a vocal band and not a rock band. When they said, we want to rock more, Glenn, you're not a rock band. The Rolling Stones are a rock band. You're a vocal band. So they came to me. They set up an interview. And Glenn Johns would only put three mics on a set of drums. And Henley's first question, how many mics do I put on a set? I said seven, eight, nine, whatever it takes. Glenn Fry said, how long can I work on my solo? Long as you want. And... That was it. They hired me. <laughs> so a week later, we go in the studio, and the first, t- first track, first take, was already gone. And rock mission accomplished. classic records on the border and one of these nights Mm -hmm. and then comes hotel california 
Yeah. Which is one of the top classic rock albums of all time, obviously. You had to be your usual producer, engineer, arranger, editor self, and... Psychologist. A psychologist. <laughs> uh, how, how much did the latter come into play? Every, every album, it got more. <laughs> to take my history of the Eagles, On the Border took maybe three weeks to record. All the songs were done before we went in the studio. Knocked it out, mixed it up, out it goes. It's a success. One of these nights was the next one, and then we, you know, every album you go in, you want to beat yourself. So one of these nights, we were going to rock a little more. Now Don Felder's in the band, so there's a little more grit, a little more flash as far as electric guitar, and we wanted to rock even more. But in the course of doing that, we're alienating Bernie Ledden, who's the country guy in the band. He's the banjo, the mandolin, and coming from a bluegrass point of view, the rest of us are, we want to rock. So during the course of one of these nights, Bernie became less and less enthralled with the band. After one of these nights was out and before we started Hotel California, he left. And that's when we put Joe in. Now we had two amazing guitar players, and we were really going to rock. That's how we entered with uh, Hotel California. Unfortunately, when we were set to start, I came out for rehearsals from Miami and we went out to L.A. I said, well, how many tunes you got? One. Oh, well, let me hear it. <laughs> it was Try and Love Again, Randy Meisner's song. It was the first song that was finished as a song. They said, well, we got bits and pieces. We got this chord structure and this, you know, verse and this, that, and so on and the other. So basically, at that point, we were writing everything in the studio. And, and it took nine months to make. Yes, a lot of experimentation. Oh, yeah. The title track, Hotel California, we how cut, was that stitched together? We cut together? that three different times. That started with a 12-string guitar riff that Felder brought in that Henley loved. And so we cut a track. In no words, it's just, let's just cut a track and da-da-da and so on. And here's this verse, here's a chorus and so on. And then he starts to write words to it. And, well, it's in the wrong key. Okay, well, then we cut it again in the right key. And then he writes more words. Two months go by, it's too fast. So he writes more words, we go in, we cut it again, and that's the one that you hear. But how many edits in that basic track? 33. <laughs> I'll never forget. 33 edits in the two-inch master. When, the... when you rewind the tape on the two-inch machine, they go... <laughs> Every time an edit would go by. As a fan, I'd like to just get your take on The Last Resort, a song that was never released as a single, but I think is really one of the centerpieces of Don Henley's career. I agree. Uh, lyrically. Yeah. Yeah, you, you call someplace paradise, kiss, kiss it goodbye. It, goodbye. Mm -hmm. it applies out here in, in the West as well as California. Oh, yeah. The orchestral arrangement at the end, that last falsetto note that he hits. That lasts forever. That lasts forever. <laughs> said that he was just younger and stronger. Big that. time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He ain't hitting that now. <laughs> Sorry, Don. But there was a ton of experimentation on that. I mean, he pretty much had the song when we started the track. 
It wasn't all filled in, but he had the general idea, and we knew we wanted to make it a big, big production. And there was a lot of experimentation along the way of just what instrument works where. And we went through tons of different combinations of instruments and things like that to get to where we finally got. The thing I remember about that song is we took so long to make this record that the tour had been booked prior to us finishing the record. We still had four or five overdubs to do, a couple of vocals, a couple of background vocals, maybe a solo or something. They'd go out on tour, they'd come in for three days, knock out a couple of vocals, overdubs, whatever, go back on tour, and by the time it came to mix it, I was the only one there. They were already gone. They were already literally on the road. So I had a hell of a time, wonderful time, mixing that by myself. If you listen to that, there are so many parts that come in and out. And it's on a 24-track tape, and there's 10 things on one track, 10 different things. And this has got to go over here before this hits, and that's got to go over there. And, you know, it was like constant jigsaw puzzle as it all went down. I'm proud of that. You supervised the entire recording process, typically, all the way to the audio mastering stage. Correct. So let's talk about vinyl graffiti. Well, <laughs> is this the time? You had a practice of inscribing... Well, let me, let me back up. Okay. When I was young, and when I was working at Regent, and you've lost that love and feeling by the Righteous Brothers, a Phil Spector record came out, and I was in love with that record. And again, I bought it, and I'm looking at it, and it goes 4.13 or something was the time, and I went, that's no way. That's like six minutes long. So I put it on the lathe, you know, where you'd cut dubs and, and master. And I put the microscope on it, and I'm looking at it. It was getting their lines are all smashed together, you know, to, to get that much time on a single. And as I'm looking at it, it goes into the closeout groove where there's in between the last groove of the record and when it stops right next to the label. And it said, fill in a net. I went, whoa, you can write in there? I'm doing it. <laughs> so for most of my albums, there are messages in there. I assume that was a way also to make sure the discs that were being pressed were from the masters that you would approve. Well, I didn't do it on purpose that way, but yeah, I could tell when certain things came back, uh-oh, that's not right. I mean, maybe that was a second generation or something like that, second generation stampers. The one I'm familiar with was on Hotel California, you wrote VOL is Five Piece Live, right. which meant that the basic track for Victim of Love was cut by the full band without no replacing overdubs. any parts, which I assume was a rarity for that band. That was the one and only time <laughs> Okay, that happened. <laughs> Great. Do you have a favorite? Vinyl graffiti? Vinyl graffiti that reflected your well, sense of humor on, or On Barnstorm, I just looked at this the other day. On Barnstorm, we wrote, and this is a Joe quote, if they only knew how hard we work. So if you look in your, uh, your closeout groove on a Barnstorm vinyl, that's there. And on the other side of Hotel California was, is it six yet? And there's a story behind that, which I'll share with you. By the time we got to Hotel California, it, it's become common knowledge that there was a, quite a bit of uh, uh, drugs and alcohol. I'll just put it that way. So our usual MO during the day, I would start at 2 in the afternoon. And we uh, were going to go till 2 in the morning, more than likely. So at 2, I wanted at least four hours of attention, attention shoppers. We must all be here together. So I said, I don't want anything going on until 6. 
then you know, everybody, they agreed, okay, we would do it. Because how we would do things is at night we would work up the track for the next day. So that would be, you know, fun, experiment, bounce things off the wall and so on and so forth till we got an arrangement that was cool. Then the next day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, clear-headed, we want to cut this track. So I need you full attention until 6 o'clock. And then at 6, you can start. <laughs> so that worked quite well for a while until about maybe two, three weeks later, around three in the afternoon, you'd hear muttering in the studio, is it six yet? (laughs) When's six going to get here? (laughs) So that became a catchphrase. (laughs) You produce so many hit records, Bill. Let's play What's Your Anecdote, okay? (laughs) Uh, uh, Elvin Bishop, his biggest hit was Fooled Around and Fell in Love. Amazing drum track by Donnie Baldwin, Mm -hmm. amazing vocal by Mickey Thomas. They both went on to join Jefferson Starship. Right. But how did that all coalesce? I had known Elvin when I was an engineer in New York, and he was in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And I engineered an album called East West that was, to me, a fantastic album. And years later, he's solo and he's out and he's got this band together with Mickey. And Mickey is one incredible singer. I think it was Phil Walden, the head of Capricorn Records, that called me and said, would you like what I'd like to do them? I said, sure, I'd like to do them. So have them come down to Criteria. That's when I was in Miami. And we'll uh, do an album. So we did the album, and the last thing we cut was Fooled Around and Fell in Love because it was like, we need something that's a little more poppy, a little less bluesy. He wrote that. So that was the last thing we cut for that album. And... Thank God we did it because that was the hit. <laughs> the little drum breaks, that was a musical hook. You work with Outlaws. Mm-hmm. Was it you who termed them the Guitar Army? Yeah, I gave them the Mighty Guitar Army, right? Huey Thomason. And Huey Thomason, Henry, Henry Paul. Those guys <laughs> broke out of that Southern rock genre to mm-hmm. great effect under your ages. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry Sundown? Yeah, Hurry during, Sundown was it. That's the one song. album I made with him in the studio, and then I worked on a live album with him, too. Jay Ferguson. Ah, one of my best friends. Tremendous talent. Got his start with Spirit in Los Angeles in the late 60s, then formed JoJo Gunn. You worked with him in that? Yeah, I I did a couple of JoJo Gunn albums. Not the ones with the hits, of course. And then when that band broke up, I asked Jay if he wanted to do a solo record. So I put the band around him. At this point, it was Vitaly, Walsh, Chocolate Perry, and we cut an album called All Alone in the End Zone. That's another one of my top fives. And he went on to do Thunder uh, Island. Thunder big, Island, big hit. Chasing love out on Thunder Island. Shakedown Cruise is another hit we had. Now. He's doing soundtrack stuff, all the musical stuff for CSI at Los Angeles. Bob Seeger, mm-hmm. Against the Wind. Right. Well, I met Bob through Glenn Fry, obviously. They're both from Michigan. Well, all three of us are from Michigan. He hung out with us a bunch. As a matter of fact, when we were doing The Long Run, he helped write The Long Run and Heartache Tonight and a couple other things. After that was over, he said, 
would I want to do a couple cuts with him? And Bob pretty much produced himself, but he would farm out a few things to producers. Barry Beckett was another one that he liked. So I did about four cuts on Against the Wind and Against the Wind being one of them. produced The Who. Face Dances was the first album with Kenny Jones on drums replacing the late Keith Moon, who had passed. Hardest album I ever had to do. Because of the dynamic in the band? Totally. Due to that circumstance? We did it in London. It's the first time I'd ever recorded out of the country. Keith was gone, and Kenny was in the band, and the band basically hated each other. I wanted Roger to sing a dummy track when we were tracking actually laying down basic tracks i wanted him to sing he said no i'd never do that oh so we, we just have to cut the tracks without a vocalist or pete would do it and then when the time for me to do vocals none of the band would show up no i don't want to be there with him <laughs> it was really that bad and i'm coming off the eagles breakup and i'm thinking well that can't get any worse oh yes it could <laughs> uh. It was ugly. (laughs) Just because of the band dynamic, it was a rough, rough album to make. Ironically, You Better You Bet, the band always cites as one of their favorite tracks. Well, thank God for that. In the aftermath. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Also on that. In, in retrospect, I love the record. I love the songs that he wrote. In Pete's book, they talk about face dances. Roger and Ant Whistle blame me. Roger also blames Kenny Jones. And Pete blames himself for the songs. And I look at that and go, are you nuts? These are killer songs. Who's to say? You are in semi-retirement? Pretty much. I work for my 30-year-old son. He's a writer, a drummer, and he's a multi-instrumentalist. He lives in L.A., and he'll work on stuff at, at his, his house. And, and when it's time to do real drums and, and real stuff, you know, and actually move air, he'll come to North Carolina, where I live and where my studio is, and we'll do stuff together. And that's fun. You have such a great spirit, and you don't seem to have too many regrets or dragging no, along. I have too zero much regrets. I wish I could remix the Who album. <laughs> That's all. I just wanted to get it done at the time, and I listen to it now and go, damn it, I'd like to remix it. <laughs> but that's what it is. Bill, what's your favorite musician's joke? Oh, my favorite musician joke. Well, I have a couple. How many drummers does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know, Bill. One, and three to tell them how Neil Pert would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> And and, and I got one more. What is the similarity between a drummer and a philosopher? I don't know, Bill. They have no concept of time. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. You're very welcome. (laughs) The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization. 
relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org.